As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to your word. It is amazing to us all that you give to us. One of your indescribable gifts is the scripture that we have before us, the very word of God. I know, God, that I take it for granted. It sits on the shelf and I sit and I wonder about things and I lack wisdom and I struggle in my own soul and yet I refuse to pick up that very book that has within it uh, your wisdom, uh, your grace to us. Um, So forgive us for that. I pray on this morning as we take it up that you'll give us good attention, that we'll understand what we have before us, the very word of God, and that it will penetrate our very hearts and we will receive it, believe it, and God, that we would love this truth, this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Turn please to Second Thessalonians in chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, please. I want to read this chapter, verses 1 through 17. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, please. Hear the word of God. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearing of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Now we've made emphasis this um, last number of weeks 
to those who have gone before us, saying that they marked out time by laying out the life of Christ. Thus, the beginning of the year actually begins with Advent, that is, in the anticipation of the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so we think about his Advents, plural, as we said, his first coming as the babe in Bethlehem being born to come, to live, to die, and to, to rise so that our sins would be forgiven, so that he would save his people from their sins. And also then, in his second Advent, when he comes as the Lord of glory. Now we've made our focus this particular Advent season on this second Advent of our Lord Jesus. Like the first, the second Advent was prophesied. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. The prophets spoke of the coming of the day of the Lord. The prophets spoke of this new heavens and new earth that would come. Indeed, our Lord Jesus himself, we remember at the, at the Passover meal that he spent with his disciples on that night that he was betrayed, the, the night before that he'd be crucified. Um, he, he spent with his disciples there around that table and he said that he wasn't again going to drink from the fruit of the vine until he drank it again with them anew in his father's kingdom. By that, he was announcing that he would return and he would be, in fact, with them. So Jesus himself spoke of it. Uh, Not only that, on the second Sunday of Advent, we think of the announcements made uh, by the angels, and that announcement came suddenly. It was a sudden thing, but but it was not really a surprise for those who were prepared. In in the same way, Jesus will come like a thief. It'll be a surprise. It'll, It'll be sudden, but it won't be a surprise to those who are, in fact, prepared. And so we're to be prepared for this time of coming. Sudden, yes. Surprise, no, it shouldn't be. We should say, oh, yes, we've been expecting him. Uh, and now, on this Sunday, there was a, an announcement made to the angels, uh, by the angels to the shepherds. And, and what's alarming there is that the announcement was made to shepherds. They were lowly, in fact, by many despised. It wasn't made to kings and princes. It was made to the lowly shepherds. You get the sense that if he's going to tell the shepherds, he's going to tell everybody, Right? And so we needn't worry about, about the, the coming of our Lord Jesus. We'll know when he comes. Now, the church in Thessalonica was confused, it appears, about that. It seems that after Paul founded the church, he and Silas, and after the persecution came upon Paul, and then even the church in Thessalonica, thus he had to leave, It seems as if after he left, uh, there was some confusion about this whole thing about the coming of of Jesus, what we call the second advent or the second coming, the the day of the Lord. And so he's had to write them. He wrote them the first letter. We looked at some of that last Sunday. And now he writes a second letter as well to deal with some of these issues. And it appears as if there was a teaching in Thessalonica that Christ had already come, that the day of the Lord had already come. And so Paul needs to deal with that. Notice how he lays it out in, 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 in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. So, so it, was, it was really disconcerting to them. There was really a, uh, something that, 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 um, that, that upset them and changed, in a sense, their, their, their lives. Uh, this false teaching, he says, don't be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit, must have been some sort of prophetic word that came that said that Christ had already returned, or a spoken word, that is someone's teaching, or a letter seeming to be from us. In other words, they must have gotten this letter and people said, look, Paul said it. And then Paul said, it wasn't from me. 
That's why the Pauline authorship, by the way, of his letters, the fact they actually came from him and not from somebody just using his name, is very important to us. So when we read these letters and it says from Paul, we believe it was really from him. He's even saying people have been writing things in my name that really aren't true. So you can only trust the ones that actually come from me, he would say. So or a letter seeming to come to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Uh, let no one deceive you in any way. So Paul's to lay out the fact that the day of the Lord has not yet come, that second coming hasn't come. Now why they would believe that the day of the Lord had come or that the second coming of Jesus had come is a bit beyond us. We, we wonder why that is the case. It could have been as some, I'll give you the big word for the day, uh, the, the, some have held that in the New Testament church that they held to an overly realized eschatology. You can write that down. You can impress your friends with that expression this afternoon. Ah, uh, what did you talk about in church this morning? An overly realized eschatology. Wow. Uh, it simply means that, that there's this sense that Christ is going to come when he comes, that he's going to fulfill all that he promised. It'll be the consummation of his kingdom. Everything will be perfect. And, and we realize then that's what the word eschatology means, that that is to the future that is to, going to come. Well, it hasn't all come yet. And we wonder how much of it has really come. We know we have forgiveness of sins, but we know we have the spirit within us. And we know thus the, 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 the rule of, 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 of sin over us has been broken and the penalty of sin has been, been paid and all of that. But how much of that which is to come is actually true today in terms of the healing of our bodies, in terms of, 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 of the perfection is how we live. And, and, and some have, have had this sort of this overly sense that all that is to come has already come, and this is it. And Paul said, no, 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 not yet. It's here, it's dawned, it's been inaugurated, it's begun, but there's still all of that yet to come. Could be that the persecution was so bad that they said, this must be it, this must be the day of the Lord, this must be what the, the, the prophet spoke of, this must have been what we've heard about in terms of the coming of Jesus, because they were being persecuted, and they, thought they, must, they may have thought, well, well, this is it. And Paul's saying, no, this isn't it. He says, there's two things that need to happen before all of this takes place before Jesus returns, before this great day of the Lord. Notice how he puts it in the middle of verse 3. He says, For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And so before the day of the Lord comes, he says, you'll, you'll, you'll know um, when it's dawning, when the day of the Lord is coming, that, um, that, that, that it will follow this rebellion, this apostasy, this falling away, this rebellion, and this coming of this person, it appears, this man of lawlessness. Obviously, the two are related, rebellion and lawlessness. Rebellion is generally against the law. And so this man of lawlessness comes, this time of rebellion, join forces, if you will, together. And he says, this is going to come before the coming of Jesus before um, the day, great day of the Lord, that is this time of judgment. And so he says it hasn't come, Jesus hasn't come, the day of the Lord hasn't come yet because these things have yet to occur. Now, if I could just take a brief aside, this is just an aside, parenthesis, uh, just an aside, because this chapter has given birth to all kinds of theories about the coming of our Lord Jesus. One, 
That's particularly well um, received in the United States and has been about since the middle of the 19th century, though sort of fading. But it, it's a view that I just want to comment on just quickly uh, because many of you were probably, could have been, taught it, uh, and many of you might still hold it. And so I just want to lay it out and say that I don't think this passage helps that view, and I'll tell you why. The view is this, that there are actually two comings of Jesus, or the one coming of Jesus is separated into two events. There is first the coming of Jesus to, to gather his people, and it comes before the great tribulation, by the way, for those of you who weren't taught this, just go on pause for a minute. But, but uh, uh, the great tribulation comes before the great tribulation. Jesus returns, gathers all the believers who are alive at that moment in time. I sort of call it the groundhog theory because he, he doesn't stay long enough to see his shadow. So he has to go back for seven years, all right? And so he takes his church. He goes back for seven years, uh, during which time there's a great tribulation that happens on the face of the earth. And that's when all this would take place. This man of lawlessness would come. This rebellion would come. At the end of that seven-year tribulation time, then Jesus returns with his saints, if you will, with believers, and he sets up a kingdom to reign for a thousand years, at the end of which is judgment. And then the new heavens and the new earth. Now, um, that's a view uh, that's, that's... uh, held widely in the U.S. Uh, it's a view that uh, really didn't have its birth until about the mid-19th century or so, but caught on rather quickly for various reasons. Um, it's undergoing some, some changes in these days, it seems, by those who've held this view pretty strongly over the last generation or so. Uh, but, but really, I don't think it's taught by Paul because he could have solved all of his issues by simply saying, you know that the day of the Lord hasn't come yet because you're still here. Because according to that view, when the day of the Lord comes, they wouldn't be here. So he says, don't worry about it. In, in fact, he could have saved himself a couple of paragraphs because this, what he's about to say really doesn't have any practical value, if you will, other than some hypothetical value to tell us what's going to come after we're not here. And so if the view you hold is that Jesus will come and take his church and the tribulation happens after that time, then these verses really don't help you very much except to tell you what you're going to miss. So his exhortation as to how we're to live doesn't help you very much either. Does that make sense? There you go. Now, what makes these differing views most difficult for us is that we differ um, on these views within the context of the evangelical church. In other words, it's people who believe that the Bible is the infallible and inerrant word of God who have different views. If it were people who didn't believe that the Bible was the word of God who held different views, we could just simply dismiss it and just say that's not a big deal because they don't really believe the Bible anyway. But, but these views come out of, of us, of people who actually hold to the scripture as being truth and, and not erring. And it's simply that some read it differently, read it differently than others. Um, it shouldn't surprise us. We differ on a variety of views about baptism, about the Lord's Supper, about charismatic gifts, about church government, uh, and so forth. And so, so, so here's just another one of those uh, situations where we disagree. So I'm going to proceed, I just want you to know, on the assumption 
that we need to know what's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And we need to know it because every Christian and every generation lives in the shadow of this rebellion and man of lawlessness. And there will be a generation of Christians, there will be a group of Christians one day who will actually live through it. It might be us. I don't know. I won't be able to help you with that. But if it is us, I want us to be prepared. In fact, the preparation for that time is to live exactly the way that we're always to live. And if we do that, then we'll be prepared for that greatest of persecutions, greatest of tribulations on the earth. So let's go back to Paul's point. He, he makes the argument that the day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus, hasn't happened yet, and it hasn't happened yet because the rebellion hasn't come and because this man of lawlessness hasn't come. And so you say, all right, what's this rebellion time? Well, this re- rebellion time is, is a time of lawlessness. It's a time of, of apostasy. It's a time of falling away. It's a time when people no longer follow after that which is true from God. Jesus speaks in general terms, but speaks of such a time. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, we read this. As he, that is Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, When will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. Sounds like Paul, doesn't it? Don't be deceived by what you've heard by way of this spirit, by way of this word, by way of this letter seeming to come from us. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another. And hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. So you get the sense that Jesus is laying this out in a very reasonable fashion. He's saying, here's what to expect. Seems like he's saying a great deal of what what Paul is saying. There'll be this rebellion. That is, that people rebel against the truth. And thus, they'll be led astray. Led astray by the spirit of lawlessness, even by this man of lawlessness who will come and and lead them astray. And he says, so don't let that uh, confuse you. Don't let that deceive you. Don't let that lead you astray when that day comes. And, and even if you see its birth pangs even now, and even if you see it, it's, it's, it's shadow even now of, of false teaching and all of that and, and difficulties and persecution, don't, 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 don't let that lead you astray. Because you see, continue to persevere. So because the ones who persevere to the end, they're the ones who really believe. They're the ones who are 
saved. The apostle Paul knows of this as well. For instance, when he writes to Timothy and he's teaching this young pastor how to lead church, he he speaks to him, for instance, in 1 Timothy and chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God has created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so he says, basically, remember, Timothy, uh, in the last days, there'll be these uh, deceitful ones and, and leading away uh, of others, perhaps even some who are in your church. They're not believers, but they're there and well, no, they're not believers because they'll be led away. And then again in 2 Timothy, in chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul writes, But understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, um, unappeasable, slanderous, without control, brooder, not loving good, uh, treacherous, Reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. And so, so, so Paul is saying to Timothy, this is going to happen in the last times, but, but it's still happening now. So avoid the people that are like that even now because that's just a shadow, just a precursor. It's just something uh, to tell us of what is to come. And then in chapter 4. In verse 3, Paul says this, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So he's, he's, he's writing to Timothy and saying, don't be deterred by that kind of thing. Because this rebellion is in the world and it's going to escalate, it appears, a time when it will, when what will characterize the earth will be lawlessness. Rebellion against the very law of God. And, And this one called this man of lawlessness. And in fact, beginning with four, uh, verse four through verse nine, Paul lays out the characteristics and what's true of this man of lawlessness. And then in verse nine through 12, he kind of lays out the, the climax of what this rebellion is. And then in verse 15, which we'll jump to, he'll speak of, of how we're to live in light of that which is to come and in light of its coming. And, and then in verses 13 and 14, he'll lay out for us, I think, the ground for our behavior, the ground or the, the rationale for why it is that we are to live the way that we live. And then in the last couple of verses, he gives a blessing. But, but this man of lawlessness is, is to come. Notice how, how, how Paul speaks of him. Verse, verse, uh, four, verse 3, he says, And the man of lawlessness is revealed, uh, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So his characteristics is lawlessness that is against the law of God. You get the sense then that he becomes a law unto himself rather than following that which is true about God, which God says he sets him up himself up as God. So it says, just in case we're 
we, we, we were afraid or just in case we might be tempted to follow him, he says he's also called the son of destruction, meaning that he's characterized by destruction, meaning he leads others to destruction, meaning that he himself will be destroyed. So he's the man of lawlessness. Destruction comes from him. Destruction will be true of him. And he said he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God. So any other religion that might exist, Paul says he'll, he'll set himself over and above that or object of worship and even God himself. He says he takes up his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Now what exactly does that mean? Well, some hold that since Paul always uses this expression, the temple of God, to refer to the church, that here is one who may well come out of what is considered to be the church, the temple of God. And he's going to set himself in the seat of authority and, says, and say that he himself is God. Others say that no, those especially who held to that view, which I poo-pooed a minute ago, who said that the temple in Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt at a particular point in time, that he'll actually make his, 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 his throne there in, in Jerusalem. It could well be that Paul is simply using this as a metaphor, as, a, as an expression, saying he's going to set himself up as God. So he's going to take his seat in the very temple, and he's going to rule from there. That, I think, is the safest. By that I mean, I think that's at least true, that we know that he is going to be one who will exalt himself in such a way as that he will say, worship me, I am the Lord of the temple. And so we know that. Whatever else is true, whether he comes from the church, whether he sits in the literal temple. But the point is that here is one who's going to make himself out to be like God. It says that he's lawless. It means that he'll come against all that is true about God. And so if we think about the law of God and just summarized in the, in the Ten Commandments, where we think of those first four that, that deal with God himself and how it is that we're to approach him, that we're to have no other gods before him. He'll say, no, that isn't true. You're not to have any other gods before me. We're not to make any graven images or, or think about God in, as, as we might imagine him. Uh, but this one will say, no, 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 no. Here's who I am. Worship me. We're to honor God by, by revering his very name. And, and this one will say, no, 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 you're to honor me by revering my very name. And we're to set aside a day, a Sabbath, unto the Lord to rest and to worship, to gaze upon him and to realize that everything comes from him. And this one's going to say, no, 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 you're going to set aside a day, not for that one, but for me to gaze upon me because I'm the one who satisfies all of your needs. So however that plays out, and I have a suspicion it isn't going to play out the way any of us are thinking it's going to play out. It rarely happens that way. I have a suspicion that we're going to know it better after the fact than before the fact, or maybe even in the midst of it. We'll go, oh, yes, Jesus is back. Ooh, now I get it, right? And, and, and so he says, but, but, but that's the way it's, it's going to, to set itself up. And then you, you look at the other ones, and you think of honoring father and mother and parents. And there'll be a whole redefinition, it seems to me, in some way of family. He'll say, no, 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 that isn't truth. Rebel against honoring father and mother. However, that will play out. And, and then this sense of you shall not kill, there'll, there'll be this sense of, of no, life is not sacred. We, you need not honor life. And so whatever that means, there'll be a rebellion against the sanctity of life. Thou shalt not commit adultery. 
there'll be a rebellion against God's definition of sexuality and sexual expression. There'll be no longer purity in marriage in that sense as that commandment leads us to, but in some sense, no longer will marriage be uh, that place of purity and fidelity and loyalty. No longer will it be that place where a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There'll be a rebellion against that. And and, and, and for a minute, we think that this could never happen. Just read the newspaper and all of these, right? And then not only that, there'll be no longer anyone to trust because... There'll be a rebellion against the notion of stealing. There'll be a rebellion against the notion of telling the truth. There'll be a rebellion against this sense of being content that is not coveting. And so here we have this man of lawlessness, no doubt, appealing to our own pride, appealing to our own pleasure, appealing to our own possessions, appealing uh, to our own prestige, appealing to our own power. All of those things in which we submit to God and say, no, you're the one who should be worshipped and honored. You're the one who is the source of my possessions. You're the power upon which I rely and depend. You know, appeal and say, no, no, you can feed all of that. Rebel against what we know as God and he'll set himself up as the one, as the definer of who we are, as the director of who we are, as the one who's worthy to receive our delight, this man of lawlessness to come. And you can only imagine then the havoc that that would wreak on the, on the earth, people like that. And you get the sense that the earth would, would become closer to hell than heaven. As the rebellion comes, as the man of lawlessness is there among us. And notice then how Paul goes on with all of this. Verse 5, he says, Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it uh, will do so until he, that is the restrainer, is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed and the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing uh, by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and all power and false signs and wonders with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and be saved. You get this sense then again that that, that there's something restraining this rebellion and this man of lawlessness. And and the question is, well, what restrains it? Well, again, if you read in the history of of, of this particular passage, you'll find all kinds of things that could possibly be restraining it. Some argue that it's it's the church that's restraining it and it's the Holy Spirit who's restraining it through the church. And that makes a great deal of sense, especially to those who think that when Jesus comes, he's going to take the church away and stay away then for seven years and come back. Because then this church church has to be out of the way. But will the church really be out of the way during that time? Some think that, that it's the angel. There's an angel in the book of Revelation that's holding back. It's that angel. Some think that perhaps it's government, that, that, that God has established and ordained governments to, to carry out that which is lawful. And so until all those governments are out of the way, then, then this man of lawlessness can't come. 
But yet often in scripture, it's the government that's a problem, that's the rule of man that's the problem. And so we wonder about that. I'll say, if I could just add this, that it seems to me that the safest way to think this through is to realize that God is sovereign over all things and he has chosen someone, something to restrain that is sufficient to restrain and a day will come when God will remove that restrainer and when that happens then in this sense the rebellion comes and the man of lawlessness comes. I love the expression of St. Augustine as he read this passage. If you know anything about St. Augustine, you know that he was not at all shy or bashful about giving his opinion on various texts. And he simply said this, I frankly do not know what Paul means by this. (laughs) Except that God, who is sovereign over all things, has established that which would restrain this rebellion and this man of lawlessness. Whatever capacity, it will be effective. A day will come when God will remove that and the man of lawlessness will come and this rebellion will come as well. We know that Satan, according to this passage, no surprise, is behind all of this and this one will come in a sense as a counterfeit Jesus. It's interesting in verse 9, it uses the expression, the coming of the lawless one. That little word coming in the New Testament, especially in the writing of Paul, is almost a technical expression used for the coming of Jesus. Some of you may know this Greek word, it's parousia. And it it means coming or arrival or the presence of. And when Jesus is spoken of, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 2, verse 8, as coming, it's that word, that appearance of Jesus. So you have on the one hand the appearance of Jesus, on the other hand you have the appearance, the presence of this man of lawlessness. And he's going to come with counterfeit signs. That is to say, people are going to look at that and say, he's the one. Look at what he can do. But the difference is, those counterfeit signs, those signs won't point to Jesus. They'll point to him. But people will be so amazed by it. And they'll meet such needs by it that people will be deceived by it. And we see that God is still sovereign over all of this because he says in those last days he'll, he'll pour out this strong delusion, if you will, that is that he'll uh, allow people to see that which this man of lawlessness does and there'll be no restraint upon them. As Paul writes in Romans in chapter 1, he'll give them over and so they'll believe. And we'll see that belief in this evil one, this belief in this man of lawlessness as the representative of the evil one, will reach its, its fullness. I think it's unwise for us to try to pick out at any point in time who this man of lawlessness may be, or is he alive today? There's all sorts of television programs and books about that. Um, and, and, and throughout history, there have been all kinds of various ones who have been spoken of as this ones. There was the, the, the Caesars in the first and second century. There were various religious leaders, popes and otherwise, uh, in the 15th, 16th, 17th century. Uh, even Luther and Calvin were considered to be by those they thought by some as this antichrist as they thought. Other religious leaders, the popes, uh, were these and this antichrist. You can only imagine in more recent history the 
Hitler's and Stalin's of the world to be seen as this one who is the Antichrist, yet they never proved to be. It should be no surprise to us that we would think we would see various ones like this because when the Apostle John speaks of this one, this man of lawlessness, he uses, unique to him in his epistles, this expression that's so common to us today, this notion of Antichrist. And so in 1 John in chapter 2, uh, John speaks of him like this, verse 18, he says, children in this The last hour. It is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they weren't with us. For if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not of us. And then he goes on to say in verse 22, Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. And so basically, John is saying, this whole spirit of Antichrist, as Paul speaks of it in verse 7 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the mystery of lawlessness, it's already at work. It's here. We see it all the time. It just hasn't reached its fullness yet. A day will come when it will be more full than it is, and, and you'll, all of life will be characterized by it. But, but we see it. We see this rebellion against the law of God. Right? We see it even in the context of what's called in some circles the church. We see those who have stood in what's called the church to say that Jesus isn't the virgin-born Son of God, God in the flesh. We've seen a falling away, even in the context of our own country. And yet, still, in other parts of the world, the church is alive and well, and the church is flourishing. You understand there are more Christians outside of the U.S. now than, than in the U.S.? Do you realize that many of the leaders of the church are coming from outside the U.S.? and not from in the U.S. in these days? Do you realize that there are many countries that view the United States of America as a mission field, as we once viewed Korea, as we once viewed China, as we once viewed Africa, and now they're looking at us as a, as a mission field? And then we see that the church in the U.S. declining. We see the church in, in, in Europe. You see, much in the context of a, of a theology of universalism that simply says that all will be saved, we see we much in this redefinition of being tolerant that says that, that everyone really is right. This lawlessness is moving away from God as sovereign one, God as Lord, God as the definer of our lives and the director of our lives and the one in whom our delight is to be. We, we see this, but, but yet we realize that while that may be happening locally and so forth, it isn't happening yet globally. We get the sense that a day will come when, when that kind of thinking and that kind of rebellion, that kind of lawlessness will, 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 will characterize the whole world and that this man of lawlessness will, it appears, have his day. But the bottom line is that the Lord Jesus will come and as Luther wrote in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly power. No thanks to them, that is the earthly powers, abideth. Right? We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph. And it will triumph.
But notice how Paul puts it here. And this surprises me in verse 10. He says, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse, and I was expecting Paul to say, believe the truth. But he doesn't. He says believe the truth in verse 12, so it's valid. I wasn't completely off base. But he uses a little nuance here and says to love the truth. So we not only believe it, but we love it. And I think he's making the point that to believe the truth is to love the truth. If you don't love it, you don't believe it. If you believe it, you love it. But he's using the word love here, I think, because he wants to say that love is what really sustains. It's that affection for. It's that grabbing hold of truth to say, I'm thankful for this. I love it. If it weren't for this, I'd have no hope. Thus, I cling to it. Yes, I believe it. But I love this. Right? In fact, when Paul gives the remedy for this, he says, this is how we deliver. Verse 15, he puts it like this. He says, to this he called you. Well, verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by the let- our letter. He says, listen, you need to, there, there's a strong hurricane force gales that are coming through. So you need to stand. You need to be planted so that nothing can sway you. You need to hold on so that nothing pulls you aside. And, and what sustains you, that is, what, what you stand firm because of what you hold fast to is the traditions that you've been taught. And by that he doesn't mean the traditions of men or even the traditions of the church. He means his word, the very word that Paul had written to them. That is, we don't understand it to be the very scripture, the very word of God. He says, hang on to this. This is it. This is what will keep you in the midst of that day. Know this. Not only know it, but believe it. Not only believe it, but love it. And he lays out for them in verse 13 the the very ground by which he can say that because he says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. That is, I give thanks to God for you, not thanks to you you, for you because God has done something. So I'm thankful for what he has done. And we should all be thankful for what he has done. And we should love what he has done. That should be our very heart. And he says, because God chose you as the first fruit. Other versions have, God chose you from the beginning to be saved. He says, I want you to love that. (laughs) I want you to see that the very fact that God in his mysterious grace has chosen you to be his. I want you to love that truth and to rejoice in it and to be thankful for it because apart from it, you have no hope. Why me? Why you? Why do we ever come into this? And it just takes our breath away to think that it's the God of the universe who did it, who chose us. Chose us to be saved, that is, to be saved from our sin, that which is destructive to us, yet us. And he saved us from that. Through sanctification by the Spirit, that is, it's the work of the Holy Spirit, enabling us to believe in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. It's this gospel that we must love. That says that it's our Lord Jesus who lived for us, our Lord Jesus who died for us. We love that. Nothing else thrills our soul. 
so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, that's it. To love that truth. He says, if you love that truth, then no matter what happens, whether you live just in the shadow of this rebellion, the shadow of this man of lawlessness, the spirit of Antichrist that's alive in the world, all that which comes to to tempt us to turn away, might even come in the form of persecution to harm us if we don't turn away. He says, but if you love the truth, if you love that which is true, if you're thankful for the fact that God has chosen you, if you're thankful for the fact that it's been a work of the Holy Spirit that set you apart, brought you to truth, if you're thankful for the fact that he has saved you, that he's enabled you to obtain this glory of Christ, you love that. You didn't fear that which is to come. Jesus lays all this out, of course, in various ways. Indeed, even that night that he was betrayed when he took the bread that was there and he gave thanks and he gave this to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And in the same way also, he took the cup and again after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. And that's what we do. You see, that's what we love. We make proclamation of the Lord's death. We love that truth. Oh, it's painful for us to think of this one who had to come and die, this holy son of God who had to come and die. But we love that truth because we know it's our only hope. If it wasn't him, it would be us. And we recognize in the midst of that the very love of God. It was him and not us. Thus an expression of the love of God to realize I'm loved by God, to realize the very death of Christ is the expression of the love of God. I love that truth. I have no hope apart from it. And we proclaim the Lord's death, the apostle said, until he comes. And so throughout all of life, in the shadow of the man of lawlessness, in the shadow of this rebellion, as it peeks in in various places, I proclaim his death. And then a day will come when he, Jesus, will come. And it might be for some, those who see the very end of this tribulation, those who who see this man of lawlessness, who, who live in this time of rebellion that seems to be as unpleasant a time in the history of the world that anyone could ever know. And yet a day will come when he will come and he'll say that one word and he'll say, yes, that's it. And we love that truth. That it's our Lord Jesus who will come and will conquer. Let's pray, Father. I pray for me, God, for us, that you would grant to us the grace to stand firm, to hold fast to that which is true. And that we would love that truth. And that you would take this bread and this juice even now and set it apart in such a way that we know that this one who is to come is here by his spirit. And he'll feed us. Spiritually speaking, he will 
sustain us, strengthen us, enable us to hold fast, enable us to look to him, to depend upon him, to love him, and to love this truth of him. Father, keep us. And even now, Father, as we come to this table, strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand their need, that is, know themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in God's sovereign mercy. To all those who receive and depend upon our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the Savior of sinners. And to all those who love that truth, believe it, cling to it. All those for whom it thrills their soul to know they've been chosen by God, to know they've been sanctified by the Spirit, set apart by him to believe the truth. To know that he's the one who has saved them. And know he's the one to whom the glory will go. We love that. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections down this aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. And as you do, remind yourself that Christ has come and that he is coming again. Please come. Whose blessed Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, promised to come again and to receive his people unto himself. We thank you for choosing us to be saved, for working in us by the Holy Spirit that we might believe the truth, for calling us through the gospel that we might obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep us ever watchful, his glorious appearing. Enable us to stand firm by holding fast to your most holy word and to live as those who wait for their Lord so that when he appears we may see him as he is and be made like him. For we hope in him alone. Amen. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace who brought again from, our, from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah.